Uh, we are in Revelation chapter 20 uh, this morning. There have been a lot of things that have taken place after, uh, since we began studying this particular book. We've seen the same cycle happen over and over again. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get to chapters 21 and 22 because they're all about the glory of God and the new heavens and the new earth and the paradise to come and, uh, and all of that. And we'll be getting away from this theme of judgment that we've seen uh, over and over again through uh, Revelation 19 and 20 and other parts of the book as well. So it's not something that's unique to this section. It's just that this has really been the focus of it now for the last couple of chapters. God's judgment upon uh, the unbelieving. God's judgment upon, first of all, the beast, the beast number one and beast number two that have been cast now into the lake of fire. Satan, as we read in, uh, in verse 10 in chapter 20, last week has now been thrown into the lake of fire. And there's only one thing left to take place, and that is God's judgment passed upon uh, all people, okay? So we're going to be looking at that in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, uh, from those whose presence earth and heaven fleeting away, or fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, uh, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The seed gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want to read to you what I think is a parallel passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning with verse 31. That when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The reason I read that for you this morning is I believe that it's describing exactly the same thing in both passages. Most people do. There are people who do not, who they believe that this great white throne judgment, which is what this is typically called, the great white throne judgment of God, just has to do with the judgment of the unbelieving. Passages in the Bible tell us a number of times that there will be a universal judgment day when all people who have ever lived will be judged whether they are believers or whether they are unbelievers, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That is what's going on here. And you see evidence of that as we're reading through here, that this involves not only unbelievers, but it involves believers as well. Everyone standing before Christ Jesus, sitting on his throne, his judgment throne, his judgment seat. The outcome will be very different for believers as opposed to unbelievers. But we will all have our day in court. It's true for every one of us. We will stand before Jesus. And as you read through here, you're going to see something. That is that what what these people are judged on is what they have done. In other words, their, their judgment is based upon their works. You see this a number of times in this passage. But here we have King Jesus sitting on his royal throne. It speaks here about the the presence of the earth and the heaven fled away. This is a cataclysmic thing. This is a day that affects all of creation. It's the day when the old order is passing away and the new order is coming. When the eternal kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of Jesus will be established here on earth. And the earth itself will be transformed once again into the paradise. We had paradise before, we took it, we destroyed it. It will be renewed And it will be absolute paradise for those who live in it. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of sin. I'm sick to death of having to deal with sin over and over again, every day. My sin. What is our hope? Our hope is that one of these days... That will be no more. You will never sin again. You'll never want to sin again. 
You won't even do it accidentally. There will never be a wrong, harsh word come out of your mouth or from anyone around you. You'll never do anything by deceit. You'll never do this. You'll never do that. You will be pure. You will be holy. You will be fully sanctified and glorified. That day is not quite here yet. There are other days to come before it. And one of those days is Judgment Day. Saw the dead. That means all the dead. The great and the small standing before the throne. Now there's something that has actually had to have happened at this point that is not mentioned specifically as we've gone through these chapters and that is the universal resurrection. That the dead here are resurrected from the dead. And they're physically standing before the throne of Christ. Bodies and spirits reunited. The spirits of those uh, who died, who are of Christ, who have gone to heaven to be with him during this time, have returned with him. They've been reunited to their bodies. And they are standing now before the throne of Jesus. Those whose spirits have passed and have gone to hell have returned. And they have been reunited with their bodies as well. And they're standing also before the judgment seat of Christ. Books were opened. And another book was opened. Which is the book of life. Obviously from the context and everything else that is here. What you find in this first book is at least the names of all of those people who have lived and whether they have physically died or they were still living when Christ came. In other words, it is the book of crimes. It is the book of criminals. It is the book of Guilt. Now, there's two ways of looking at this, and I really, I'm going to give you two different ideas here, and you can decide whatever you want to. I don't really care, but, 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 but there's a way of thinking about this. So the first book contains the, the, the names of just the unbelieving, and we know this without a doubt that the second book, this book of life, is the, the, the Lamb's book of life in which all of the names of every person that has ever lived that has known Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have come to him, their names are written in that book. And those names were written in that book at the very foundation of the earth. At the beginning of time is when those names were written in that book. Not on the day when they came to faith in Jesus. That tells us some things. And one of those is this, is that God has known all along exactly who was coming and who wasn't. Does that surprise us that an, an omniscient God would have that kind of knowledge and understanding that, that, that when, when so-and-so comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a surprise to him. He knows. And it's not only that he knows guys and gals, it's that he's determined it would be so. See, what I would say to you is this, is that if you're a believer, your name is in both books. 
that your name is in the first book because you're guilty. It's the book of criminals. It's the book of guilt. Your name is there. But fortunately, there's also this Lamb's book of life. Which is the book of pardon. Unmerited. Gracious. Pardon. That even though you have committed crimes, you have committed heinous, multitudinous crimes against God, he nonetheless has written your name in the Lamb's book of life and pardons you based upon not your own works, but based upon the works that Jesus has done on your behalf. There is no defense for the unbelieving. There are no appeals. There is no appellate court. There are no appellate judges. God's judgment this day will be final and absolute. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. I think really what's being expressed here is just the universality of it. And in essence, all the dead. Think about the sea. The sea sometimes can be one of the most calming things. I love to go to the beach, and you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's really calming to my spirit to be at the beach. If you've ever been out on a ship or a boat out in deep water when, when the sea is just unbelievably calm, it, is just, it has a real calming effect on you. But at the same time, we know that the sea can rage unbelievably in storms and hurricanes, and, and etc. And, and, and we understand that, that that's not necessarily the place you want to be in a boat. The sea has claimed the lives of many, many, many down through the generations. I was reading the other day that within just uh, about a four or five year period in the United States, there were 750 something people who drowned in coastal waters of the United States during those years. Way more than you might possibly think. Can you imagine this, that in the, in the days uh, uh, of the Bible writers, that there was a great fear of the sea? Probably more so than now. Because shipwrecks were real common. Paul makes mention of it in Second Corinthians 13. We know that he spent some time on the water, but we also know this. It seems like Paul avoided sailing most of the time if he didn't have to do that. He took the land routes, which were a lot, took a lot more time, a lot more physically demanding of him, and etc. But he, he, would, he sailed some of the time, but it seems... The times when he was sailing, he was in a hurry to get somewhere. And he didn't want to take the time it would take to walk. He 
he makes mention of the fact that he was shipwrecked three times. How many times have you been, you've been shipwrecked? Has anybody in this room been shipwrecked one time? You need to understand that life in the Roman world really centered around the Mediterranean Sea. There was a lot of shipping that went on, and people went places, they went on ships. And it was very common for ships to wreck and sink and people die. Think about all the battles. As far back as 400 B.C., we have records of the Athenian navy attempting to conquer Syracuse, Sicily. They lost 200 ships in the battle that ensued. And each one of those ships had 200 sailors on it. You think about the sea battles in more modern days. Remember the Lexington from World War II that sank and drowned. It's not just a drowning thing. There's horrible creatures in the sea that eat people, like sharks and things like that. Ever been out in deep water in a boat and jump over and you kind of have the heebie-jeebies because you feel like something's watching you? (laughs) Remember when Jaws came out and people's perspective on sharks really changed a lot? We didn't think too much about it before then. One of the funniest stories I heard about it was my invertebrate zoology professor at college was actually a Naval Reserve diver. And and right at the time that the the book Jaws came out, he bought a copy of it and he had to go out on a a practice uh, exercise and he decided to take the book along with him. So he's reading the book. And he gets through it right before he has to go out on a night dive. <laughs> He's talking about how he just had the heebie-jeebies, creepies the whole time he was in the waters, expecting to be gobbled up by this massive shark. Just think about all the bodies that have been left in the ocean that were never found again, never recovered. Not only that, you have burial by sea very often. Probably more common in past years, not so much anymore, but very common in past years. People that died on voyages were dumped over the side. But all of those dead are given up by the sea. All of the dead are given up by death itself in Hades which is a name, it's a Greek name that was given to the god of the underworld, Hades, in his abode, which was called Hades, or what we would call hell. We know what the second death is. Chapter 20 talks about the first death. Then it talks now about the second death. How do we know what the second death is? First death is the physical death of the body, which we've been talking about up to this point. The second death is the lake of fire. Hell. The first is physical. The second, in essence, is spiritual. 
the first life comes to an end, unless you happen to be one of those people that are living at the time, the immediate time when Christ comes back. You will die. We know that's true of everyone in this room. We eventually will die. There may be some people that are sitting here this morning that will not be here this time next year. It's part of life. It's part of living in this broken and fallen world. It is part of the curse that we brought upon ourselves. And we all know the hurt and the grief and the harm that it does to us. It wrenches our hearts when we think about it. But even though all of us, except for those people that happen to be living at the time of Christ's return, we'll suffer death eventually, but that's the physical death. There's a worse death. That is the second death. That is to be thrown into the lake of fire, to be cast into hell for all of eternity with Satan and his angels and the first beast and the false prophet. It is not just for a time. It is forever. There will be no end to the torment. It is everlasting torment. And it's torment beyond our wildest imagination. Just some things in general I want to talk about in regard to this. There are some people that are called, they go by the name of annihilationists. Have you ever heard of that term before? Uh, Seven-day Adventists would fit into that category. John Stott, who was a very prominent uh, uh, English clergyman back in the 1900s, probably he was he was recognized by Time Magazine as being one of the the hundred most influential people in the world at one time. But he toyed with the idea of annihilationism, and what it means is this is that there will not be eternal judgment, eternal punishment upon the unbelieving, but they will just simply be annihilated at that point, or they will cease to exist. Now, that sounds like an option that most of us would choose if that were a possibility. We would much rather people that we know that are unbelievers not to face hell for all of eternity. It would be a lot more easy upon our hearts to think and believe that they had been annihilated, they just ceased to exist, that they're not right now hurting, being tormented, and so on. It would be very appealing to be able to believe something like that. The problem with it is this, is there really is no scriptural basis for it at all. It's nothing but wishful thinking. Another question that I wanted to do, a thing I wanted to address this morning was this is, is God present in hell? Because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, hell is a place where God's not present. That is theologically wrong, okay? Very wrong. Because God is omnipresent, which means God is everywhere. God is present in, in hell. But... The characteristics that he expresses are not multifold. In other words, he doesn't express his love. He doesn't express his grace, his kindness, his gentleness, even though those are parts of his character. 
There is no sense, there is no presence of God's favor in hell. Only his righteous indignation and anger, etc., etc., etc. We cannot even begin to conceive of what this place is like and what the torment will be like. If we could, where we are right now, being still the sinners that we are, I think probably most of us would be aghast. And we would think things like, God, how could you be so cruel? How could you be so hard-hearted? As I challenged us with before, what is, what is speaking to us when we have those thoughts is the sinner within us, not the believer. The sinner that is still there saying in some way that this must be wrong. God can't do something like this. It's because you and I do not see sin in the same light that God does. We see it as these little teeny tiny misdemeanors. Sometimes you and I honestly think God's making a big deal out of what we think is not so much. That every sin, my friends, every sin, even in what we would consider to be the smallest sin, is cosmic rebellion against God himself. Some people want to talk about minor sins as compared to major sins. Roman Catholics talk about venial sins and mortal sins. Venial sins being lesser sins. Mortal sins being deadly sins. The problem, my friends, is this, is the Bible makes no such distinction. Every sin no matter how small we think it might be, God abhors. He hates it with a passion that you and I can't come close to understanding. In the end, the unbeliever will get what they deserve. Period. It is what they have earned for themselves. It is what, what they've done this to themselves. They've destroyed themselves. The only difference between believers and unbelievers is this. They are both guilty as they possibly, not as guilty as they possibly can be. I guess we could sin more than we do. But we're all guilty as all get out. Every one of us. God is not obligated to save anyone. Period. He doesn't have to save a single soul. But he is a God of grace. He is a God of anger. He is a God, a jealous God. He is an absolute and perfect judge. 
The sentence always fits the crime. Always, perfectly fits the crime. It's never greater. It's never lesser. That is God's perfect justice. He's perfect in everything. We at this point will finally see sin as sin is. And I would imagine we're just going to have a glimpse of it. But finally, when you and I reach this point where we're glorified, where we are made perfect in righteousness as a result of all of this, that we will, we will hate sin like God hates sin. And we will understand that this is perfect justice. Nothing less, nothing more. We live in a, in a church today that very rarely speaks about these things. There are some churches where you never hear anything like this spoken about at all. The only thing they talk about is God's love and God loves you and so on and so on and so on. And that's all it's about week after week after week after week. And there's never any mention of anything like God's judgment that's coming. And sometimes you hear people say, well, what we need to do is we need to love the sinner. And you need to understand something. We need, and there's a sense in which we do need to love the sinners. We need to love them into the kingdom. And the one, one, of the, one of the biggest issues as far as the church and the world goes today is this, is very often it's hard to distinguish who is who. Very often church people look pretty much like the people of the world. I mean, how many people do you know that they see Jesus basically as their ticket into heaven? They don't see any reason why they need to live their life any particular way according to his commandments. They don't see any reason why they need to share him with other people and so on and so on. The only thing Jesus is to probably a whole lot of people even sitting in church today is they see him as their ticket into heaven. That nothing at all is required of them. But that just isn't simply, simply isn't true. That Jesus has bought and paid for us. We are his servants. We are called to serve him in life. And one of the big ways that we serve him is by Spreading the message. The message of the gospel. That there is a day of judgment coming. And there's a way, there's a means by which you can be saved from it. Remember, we need to remember when we think about what Jesus has done for why Jesus has done what he's done for us. He has saved us for himself. To be a people unto himself. Who will never ever know anything from him but his love. His kindness. His gentleness. His caring. He has saved us for himself. 
but he has also saved us from something. He has saved us from the wrath to come. Only by his grace. Please don't think that because you're saved, you're better than other people. You are not. It's very easy for people to begin to fall into that trap. You start falling into that trap, the sin in your own heart and life becomes almost oblivious to you. You don't see it. It may be obvious to other people around you, and very often it is. And how often do people picture themselves as just these great and loving and caring people and at the same time, there are other people that think that they're the devil. You want to know what, uh, what you're really like? Listen to what other people say about you. And remember this, that people are very rarely honest when they talk about other people. I can't tell you how many times, guys and gals, I've heard people describe people, how bad they are, and I'm thinking, you know what? It sounds to me like you're describing yourself. It's so easy to see sin in other people and be blind to our own. We're all guilty of it. The things that very often upset you the most that you see in other people, there's a very good chance that there are some of the same characteristics you share in common with them, only you see it in them and you're oblivious to it in yourself. I've seen it happen over and over again. I've listened to someone describing someone else and, 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 and how bad this person is, and the whole time I'm thinking, it sounds to me like you're describing yourself. Don't kid yourself. There's only one thing that has saved you. God's grace, and God's grace only. Unmerited grace, given freely to those who absolutely are undeserving of it in every single case. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Since the very foundation of the world, before you came into existence, your name was already there. God has known all along who would be saved and who would not be saved. And he has worked out absolutely every detail that was necessary to make salvation not only possible, but absolute If there's anybody can throw a monkey wrench into the business, it would mess it all up. We need to understand that the only way that God could do what he had planned on doing here was to carry out every step of it himself. That's the only way every jot and tittle would fall into the right place at the right time that it had to to make it all possible. He did it. And he knew why and for who he did it at the very beginning of time. 
That's what all this is about. Christ doing. Now, I had meant to say this before. I can't not, not say this. That we will stand before his judgment seat. That that judgment is not going to determine whether we go to heaven or hell. It has to do with how we're, what our heavenly rewards will be like. Now, I don't talk a whole lot about this, but this is biblical. This is not just me talking. And I want to say this, too, that hell will not be the same thing for everybody, that there is evidence in Scripture that for some people it's worse than other people. But at the same time, we also know that our heavenly rewards will not be, rewards will not be equal either. Why? Because there's Scripture that says that. We, will we all be in the he- new heavens and the new earth? But it doesn't mean that we will all have the same degree and level of, of living in the new heavens and earth. When it comes to judgment for us, as far as sin goes, God could not judge us again on our sin because he's already judged, already judged Christ for it. He can't apply the penalty twice. That would be unjust. That's why we will stand before the judgment seat, not determine whether we're going to heaven or hell. But for him to tell us basically what our reward is going to be in heaven. I don't know about you, but I, I, you know, I long to hear some things. And one of the things I long most to hear is just simply these words. At the time I stand before Jesus, I would just love to hear these words. Well done, O good and faithful servant. Do you long to hear that? I hope so. Life isn't easy. Being a Christian is not an easy thing. Some people make it out to be. And if you think it is, then you may want to rethink some things. It's filled with trial and tribulation and sometimes persecution and things like that. You have to serve to be a servant. You have to serve Christ to be a servant. And sometimes that means doing things you just don't want to do. Very often, let me tell you, let me warn you, it's going to mean doing things we don't want to do. Let me tell you, not so many years ago, the last person on the face of the earth I wanted to be was a pastor. When I became a believer, I did not want to become a pastor. It was the farthest thing from my mind. But when he calls us to service, can't we just say, you know, I don't feel like doing that. I don't want to do this. People seem to do this all the time. You can't. He calls you to serve. You do it. Period. Whether you like it, whether you want it, whether you feel good about it. We honored Dave Hiley's life a few weeks ago. John Ketchin's life last November. We celebrated their life. 
And the only reason we are able to do that is because we have every assurance that where they are right now is with Lord Jesus. And they're already beginning to experience the paradise to come. They are in a good place, a better place. And I believe this with all my heart. If given the opportunity to come back and leave behind what they now know, they wouldn't do it as much as they love people in this room. It is unbelievable. The reward is just unbelievable. We can't even begin to comprehend the things that God has in store for those whose names are written in that very precious book. But this table is all about what we're talking about this morning. It's this the simple fact that what we're remembering here, notice we don't say that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I don't think we're ever going to celebrate Jesus dying. If we did that, I think maybe there's something wrong with us. Were there people who celebrated Jesus dying? What about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and some of the Romans and a lot of the Jewish people? They celebrate the death of Jesus. We don't celebrate the death of Jesus here, but we do remember it. Why? Because this is where he paid the price. This is where he paid the penalty for our sins. We do this the second Sunday of every month. Uh, we practice limited open communion. Okay. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? You don't have to be a member of Springs Presbyterian Church to participate in communion here. Uh, but you do have to meet certain criteria. You have to be a believer. You have to come at the point in your life where you have stopped trying to be good enough and trying to save yourself. You've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. He has paid the penalty for you. Your name is in that book. That book of life. 